Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is episode 81 of Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. We're talking about law. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in the Commonwealth of Virginia to better strengthen and serve your communities? And today, we're talking about Miranda waivers. Specifically, how do you obtain a valid Miranda waiver from somebody who is intoxicated, who's suffered a traumatic brain injury, who might be under the influence of a drug or might have some kind of severe mental deficit that someone could argue makes them incapable of understanding their rights or incapable of voluntarily waiving their rights. And today we're going to focus on a case from Fairfax County. This is actually a pending murder case in Fairfax County that was heard by the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals issued an opinion this week suppressing the defendant's confession in this case. And I want to dive into the facts of this case and see how other courts have addressed similar situations before to see if we can learn how we can effectively obtain and articulate Miranda waivers in cases where we deal with people who are intoxicated, have traumatic brain injuries, might have a mental deficit, uh, and so on. So let's talk about this case for a moment first. So this is a case pending in Fairfax County Circuit Court. It's actually pending right now. It's a murder that has not gone to trial yet. But the Commonwealth appealed the trial court's decision to suppress the defendant's confession. So this is a case called Commonwealth versus Giampa, and it's a case where the defendant killed his girlfriend's parents. Um, the defendant is 17 years old, and he murdered these two victims in December of 2017. Now, the defendant is, as I said, a juvenile. He was in high school at the time, and he had prior contact already with the criminal justice system. He had an IQ of approximately 64. He read on a fifth grade level, and he had an established history of major, major depressive disorder. He either had autism spectrum disorder or some kind of paranoia, um, but some kind of significant mental defects. And after the murders, he appeared to have shot himself to, in the head. Uh, the bullet entered his skull at the center of his forehead, and it exited above the left ear. Um, it left uh, significant damage in his brain. It also left bullet fragments in his brain. A portion of his skull was removed uh, due to the fragments and swelling. Uh, doctors initiated a coma, induced a coma, until the end of the first week of January. And even after he woke up, uh, there was he, he had some cognitive deficits, some linguistic deficits. Um, he had problem speaking. Uh, and problems even visually understanding what was around him. Officers visit him in early January to, to ask him about the murder, because uh, obviously since the murder he and having shot himself, he's been in this coma, and they want to find out what happened. So they go to him and they speak to him, and they record. Uh, there's actually an audio recording of the entire... Um, interviews of both of the interviews that the officers do in this case and the officers read him his Miranda rights they orally read them to him they also then hand him his Miranda waiver and ask him to read it to himself and then sign it um, they they ask him and it's on the recording um, they ask him can you read and see the stuff that's there 
And the response that they get on the audio recording is basically like a grunt. The, it appeared to be a yes. Uh, the officers that appeared to be a yes, and even to the trial court, the court seemed to indicate the grunt sounded kind of like a yes. But the officers don't do anything to follow up to make sure that he understands the rights. Um, they don't do any kind of follow-up uh, questioning or anything like that. It's pretty perfunctory, and the court ultimately will criticize this as having kind of taken place kind of fast. They go through his rights relatively quickly. Now, that might be fine with most of, of a normal case, but here, the trial court really focuses on the defendant's uh, mental state, his physical condition, his mental condition. And the court really listens to the audio recording and makes a number of factual findings. The trial court here finds that the recordings show that the defendant was speaking in a halting, strained way, and he was making materially inconsistent statements that indicated that he could not have been aware of or appreciated the rights that he was waiving. Um, the court pointed to a number of statements that were just simply not true. Uh, the defendant made a statement that he'd shot and killed five people, including the victim's youngest son. Um, he stated that his girlfriend shot herself. He stated he didn't know his own father's name. He didn't know his longtime former girlfriend's name. He called her a completely different name. And the court also pointed to his own statement, the defendant's own statements, that he that his brain was half asleep and noted that he was incomprehensible at times. Um, he was inaccurate beyond the way that people are inaccurate when they just lie to cover themselves up or lie for you know whatever reason people lie for, that this seemed to indicate that he did not have the ability to knowingly and intelligently comprehend his Miranda rights to the point where he could waive them. And the trial court here, again, really did focus on the way that the officers went through his rights with him. The court gave a lot of weight to the speed at which the officers read the rights to the, to the defendant. And again, failing to confirm that he understood those rights, which is something that you wouldn't normally do. But here in this case, the defendant, the court found, had longstanding social comprehension deficits that were exacerbated by his traumatic brain injury from having shot himself and called into question for the court whether or not he understood the rights that he was waiving. Um, he had severe cognitive confusion throughout the interview. Uh, and again, that appeared to be more than just some kind of self-protection, that he really just didn't understand what was, you know, he was having problems understanding anything. So the court here says, uh, the trial court here finds that the Commonwealth failed to prove by preponderance of the evidence that the defendant knowingly and intelligently waived his Miranda rights. And the Court of Appeals agrees. Now, you may pause here for a second and say, hang on a second, did you say that the Commonwealth failed to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that the defendant knowingly and intelligently waived his Miranda rights? I thought the defendant was making this motion to suppress. Isn't it the defendant's burden to prove that the Miranda waiver wasn't valid? But as it turns out, the law here is always that in any situation where you have a Miranda waiver, it's always the Commonwealth's burden to demonstrate that the Miranda waiver is knowing, intelligent, and voluntary. In any case, regardless of whether the defendant is old or young or intoxicated or sober or whatever, it's always been our burden in, in every single case, if we're going to interview a, in, uh, introduce a statement at trial, to demonstrate that the defendant knowingly and intelligently waived his Miranda rights. 
Now, fortunately, it's pretty easy to do that in most cases, right? You arrest somebody for larceny, you bring them in, you sit them down in a room, you read the Miranda rights, they initial their rights, they say they understand them, they appear to be, you know, sober and they're an adult and they're, you know, nothing about their statements indicates they don't understand. And the court finds, you know, 99% of the time that these statements are entered knowingly and voluntarily uh, with a waiver of their Miranda rights. But it's always our burden. And here, the court simply finds that the Commonwealth didn't meet that burden. So is this case particularly unusual? What could the officers have done differently? And what lessons are there for us going forward if you deal with somebody who is intoxicated or uh, they have some kind of mental deficit or they're injured or whatever? Well, on this topic, I think it's really interesting to contrast a different case, another case from Fairfax County from 20 years ago, a case called Sellers versus Commonwealth. And Sellers versus Commonwealth is a case, it's a drug case, it's not a murder case, but I think it's interesting to, to contrast what the court finds in that case from what the court finds in this case. In Sellers versus Commonwealth, this was a distribution of cocaine case uh, where an a officer working undercover, um, this is actually somebody uh, you might know. His name is Ken Pedigo. He was a sergeant in the narcotics section of Fairfax County Police Department. Um, and uh, I think he's uh, still around and still teaches from time to time. Anyway, so he is working undercover and he, sell, uh, he buys uh, crack cocaine from the defendant and then ultimately uh, participates in the arrest of the defendant. The officer is able to articulate that when he first encountered the defendant, the defendant seemed normal, coherent, he was talking, he didn't see the defendant use drugs, he didn't see him use alcohol, he didn't stagger, he didn't sway, he was perfectly okay. Um, and then the police burst in, they arrest him, they take him in custody. Again, another person testifies he's not slurred, he doesn't appear intoxicated, uh, he's 48 years old, he has five prior felony convictions. So they bring him into the police department, police station, and a couple of hours later, they go to debrief him, to interview him. At that point, he's passed out in the interview room, and officers walk in, they speak to him, they read him his Miranda rights, and they ask him if he understands each one of the statements. They go through statement by statement. You have the right to remain silent. Do you understand? Yes. Initial where you say you understand. You have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford an attorney, one of the represents you in any charge, no charge. Do you understand? Yes. And again, he initials each time. He says he understands them. They confirm his ability to read and write. They confirm that he has a GED. And they ask him, have you had anything to, to drink? Are you intoxicated or anything like that? And he says, well, I've had two beers and I took five or six hits of crack cocaine before you arrested me. And he does appear to be sleepy, but he doesn't appear to have the odor of alcohol about him. And again, just like a couple of hours before when the officers bought cocaine from him, he didn't appear to be intoxicated. He didn't appear to be under, able, unable to understand questions. He was speaking, again, in a sleepy, low, monotone voice, and he actually closed his eyes at one point. And an officer uh, snapped his fingers and said, hey, man, wake up. I need you to listen to this. I need you to understand. He said, okay. And he makes a statement. So at the end of the statement, the officers read the statement back to him, and the defendant signs the statement. 
When they do, uh, the defendant says, actually, there's some things I need to change, some things in there that are not true. He reviews the statement again. He makes the changes. Uh, he records the changes. He then reads it and signs the amended statement. And again, starts to pass out again. And again, the officers snap their fingers and say, hey, man, wake up, wake up, wake up. This whole conversation takes about 30 minutes. And of course, he moves his arrest and he says, my weakened state made that statement involuntary. So the court here looks at the question, right? And they say, well, again, it's the Commonwealth's burden to prove whether or not the statement is knowingly and inten uh, intentionally, excuse me, whether or not the person's Miranda waiver is given knowingly, intentionally, and voluntarily. And to make that determination, the trial court basically has to determine whether the statement was the product of an essentially free and unconstrained choice or whether or not the person's will has been overborne. That is to say, whether their capacity for self-determination has been somehow critically impaired. And that standard comes from the U.S. Supreme Court, a case called Schneckloss versus Bustamante, which is an old case from 1973, and also a case called U.S. versus Dickerson, which is that famous Christian burial speech case from uh, the Midwest from a number of years ago. In deciding this, in looking at the fact, facts and circumstances of the case, what does a court have to look at to figure out whether or not somebody's waiver is voluntary, intelligent, and knowing? Well, they look at the defendant's age, the defendant's intelligence, the defendant's mental and physical condition, the defendant's background, and the defendant's experience with the criminal justice system, the conduct of the police, and the circumstances of the interview. So the court looks at all these factors together in making a determination. And so the, what about the fact the defendant is on drugs here, right? Well, the court looks at this and says, well, a deficient mental condition, whether the result of pre-existing mental illness or pain-killing narcotics or whatever, in and of itself doesn't mean that a Miranda waiver is involuntary. Again, you always look at the totality of the circumstances. So in this case, Sellers, the case from 2003, is 48 years old. He's got extensive experience with the criminal justice system. He's got five prior felony convictions. He's got a GED. He can read and write. Um, when the police talk to him at 1 a.m., when uh, Ken Pedigo buys from him, he's, his speech is clear. He's coherent. He speaks to the officers with no sign of incoherence. He completes a drug transaction. Um, he's walking around without swaying or staggering. And even 3 a.m., he's got no difficulty walking or speaking clearly. He's tired, right? But he does not smell of alcohol. He doesn't appear, he's responsive to questions. So the court finds that his uh, waiver is knowing, intelligent, and voluntary. And there's a lot of cases like this, right, where you have people who have some kind of impairment. Um, Peterson versus Commonwealth, for example. Uh, Peterson is a case where the defendant was questioned in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. He had cocaine. He had blurred vision. He couldn't understand everything that was going on around him. And he was having chest pains. He's suffering. He can't breathe. He's connected to a heart monitor. All right, that guy right? He is especially susceptible. He is in a situation where the police are in there, in the ambulance with him. Um, their authority overbears his will, and that's coercive police activity that renders his statement involuntary and admissible. Sure, absolutely, right? But that's not what we have here. Uh, we don't have somebody who appears intoxicated. He's not seriously debilitating. He doesn't, he doesn't have a serious debilitating physical problem. 
But if you look at the Giampa case, is that similar or is that different? Well, Giampa doesn't appear the same way, right? He does appear to be not intoxicated, but he's got cognitive problems. He's making statements that don't make sense. Um, and he certainly has serious and debilitating physical problems, like having shot himself in the head. Um, now, again, you know, if you look at other cases, like Stockton versus Commonwealth, the case from 1984, that's a case where the defendant had antidepressants and tranquilizers. He had taken them in large doses. The court still didn't find that was an involuntary confession because, again, he didn't appear to be under the influence of the drugs. He appeared to know what he was doing. He didn't, he didn't have any problem understanding the questions from the police. And a couple of years later in Goodwin versus Commonwealth, the defendant there wasn't intoxicated, uh, wasn't as intoxicated as Stockton was, but he was mildly retarded and he had the odor of alcohol about him. But he told the police he wasn't drunk. He appeared in control. He answered questions coherently and he was able to make changes to the written statement. And remember, that's kind of important. If you look here at, at Sellers, in Sellers, they read a statement back to him and they say, you know, is this an accurate statement? And he's like, no, actually, there's things I need to change in there. And then he makes changes, right, which demonstrate that he uh, is in a situation where he can knowingly and intelligently understand the conversation with the officers, which is a contrast from Giampa, where he makes statements that are just clearly not true, uh, and he doesn't correct them. So, you know, again, there's lots of different cases like this. Boggs versus Commonwealth was a case where the defendant had argued that his confession was involuntary on the grounds that he had consumed a six-pack of beer, he'd shared a fifth of whiskey with his friends, he'd smoked marijuana, and had uh, two hits of speed, amphetamines. Um, he blew a 2-2 on the intoxilizer uh, when the officers arrest him. He was, so he stopped for, uh, he stopped on a, obviously on a traffic violation, and he's driving fast, but when the officer speaks to him, he observes, hey, you know, he's walking okay, um, his gait is not unusual, his speech is clear, he's not acting like he's intoxicated. And of course, you know, how is that true? How can you be a 2-2 and not act intoxicated? Well, you're an alcoholic, right? And we've all run into people in life who at a 2-2 can have a normal conversation with somebody. That's their normal functioning level. And it might be that if they get down to something like a 0.08, they might be in really severe medical distress because their body really only functions at a 2-2. Um, I've seen people as high as a 0.69 um, and, and, and have a conversation with officers and describe things in detail that are accurate. So again, in Boggs, where he's a 2-2 uh, and he's walking around, he's having a conversation with the officer, the court said that statement given to the officer was still considered to be voluntary. So, you know, what does this mean, right? What, is, what does it mean for the standards that the courts are going to impose? I mean, I think it's interesting to go all the way back before Miranda. Um, there's a famous case called Townsend versus Sane, and this is a case from 1962, the U.S. Supreme Court. They actually decided in 1963, and it's a case where it also gives us some insight into what things used to be like. Um, they arrested a mis uh, they arrested the defendant for a robbery on New Year's Day in 1954. He was 19 years old. He was a heroin addict. He was a user of narcotics since the age of 15. And he had just taken heroin about an hour and a half before his arrest. Um, and he had been shooting heroin about three to five hours apart. So when the police bring him in, um, they question him initially, and then they hold him for a bunch of hours. They hold him ultimately for like a whole day. And they keep going back and trying to talk to him. 
So as you can imagine, if he's injecting himself with heroin every three to five hours, he's pretty addicted and he's gonna go into withdrawal pretty soon, and he does. He starts going into withdrawal, he says he needs narcotics, and so they call a doctor for him. The doctor shows up and gives him medication. What he gives him is um, phenobarbital and something called hyoscine. Now, the officers don't realize it at the time. They don't understand. They just like, Doc, give him something for his you know, withdrawal symptoms. But later on, what they learn is that hyoscine is basically scopolamine. And if you don't know what scopolamine is, um, that is, uh, go back and watch The Guns of Navarone, for example, a great World War II movie, great movie, Gregory Peck, um, Anthony Quinn, and they talk a lot about scopolamine in that movie. That is what in World War II was called a truth serum. So they give him these drugs, and then they go back and interview him again later, and he makes a full confession. So the issue becomes, was that a voluntary statement under the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution? Now remember, uh, at this point, Miranda hasn't been decided yet. So he hasn't, nobody's read him his rights. He's just sitting in jail for this robbery. Um, but even then, the rule was any questioning by police officers, which produces a confession that is not the product of somebody's free will, free intellect, makes that confession inadmissible under the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. And so in this case, they don't decide whether or not the confession was admissible or not, but they tell the lower court, you need to examine this. You need to go back and look at these facts. Um, you know, it, we can't be giving people truth serum and trying to get them to confess. That's not really the way we're trying to do things. So, you know, from there we get the uh, we get the, the Miranda case, and, and then that takes us obviously to the case from this week. So, again, does it mean you can't talk to somebody who is intoxicated? You can't talk to somebody who has uh, mental deficits. No, it doesn't. I mean, if you look at, for example, Stockton versus Commonwealth, which is a 1984 case, this is a murder for hire case, a capital murder case, and officers speak to Mr. Stockton, who uh, is incarcerated, and he um, he had antidepressants, he had tranquilizers, um, he he had taken drugs that definitely could affect your ability to make important decisions, but the physician who gave the drugs said he's able to function normally. He appears to be, in his words, clear as a bell. He wasn't particularly sensitive to the drugs. Um, it took a lot of drugs to affect him, and the doctor testified that he hadn't prescribed large doses under the circumstances. So he also opined at trial the drugs he prescribed would not have caused Stockton to say or do anything involuntary. Which, by the way, really contrasts this case with Giampa. Because notice that in the Fairfax case from this week, the doctors are very much testifying for the defendant, saying that he's got cognitive difficulties, he doesn't understand uh, what's going on around him, he's got speech difficulties, uh, he's got comprehension deficits, and so on. So the opposite, right? You don't have the doctors testifying for you, you have them testifying for the defendant. The officer who spoke to... Uh, Mr. Stockton in, 19, in the 1984 case said he dealt with him. He never appeared to be under the influence of drugs. He appeared to know what he was doing. He had no difficulty understanding questions. He indicated he understood his rights. And the court again found here that the uh, evidence, the statements were admissible. The court applied the same test here, right? Is, is the statement the product of an essentially free and unconstrained choice by its maker? Or was his will overborne and his capacity for self-determination critically impaired? 
And again, the court's looking at the totality of the circumstances. The mere fact that he's intoxicated in and of itself doesn't make the statement involuntary. We've got to look at the totality of the circumstances. Um, and the same thing is true in Eaton versus Commonwealth, which is another capital murder case. Uh, this is a case from 1990. And uh, again, in this case, you're going to see right the same kind of issues, the same kind of standards applied by the courts. Um, this was a case, though, where it was important to the court, just like in the Sellers case, the Fairfax case from, 19, from 2003, that Eaton was not a stranger to the criminal justice system. He'd been arrested before. He'd received numerous Miranda warnings in the past. And he had uh, conferred with and advised by an attorney in previous cases. So even though his intelligence was in the low to average range, um, and uh, he still understood his rights. And I think Eaton's a really good insight into articulation and also the differences between Giampa and other cases, because Eaton, just like Giampa, had shot himself, had given, had given himself a shelf-inflicted uh, gunshot wound. But the court's looking at the totality of the circumstances. And yeah, he's got a self-inflicted gunshot wound, which might be a traumatic brain injury, which might cause problems, but he's somebody who, who had gone in understanding his rights. Um, and this is something, by the way, that I've used before. You know, it's always good to get a written Miranda waiver, I always tell people, not just for your case, but you never know when the written Miranda waiver that you obtain today is somehow going to be useful for our officers 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road. I did a serious uh, child sexual assault, child exploitation case uh, a number of years ago, and the defendant claimed because of his mental condition that he didn't understand his rights at the time that he raved his Miranda rights. But we were able to go back and pull a case file from 20 years earlier where he had been read his Miranda rights and the officer had obtained a written waiver and brought that officer in and the officer was able to testify, yeah, I gave this guy his Miranda rights. He said he understood them. He initialed each one of his statements. This guy has known his Miranda rights for 20 years. So his claim that, oh, I was intoxicated and so I couldn't understand what the officer was reading me about my rights really fell flat for the court because the court said, well, what do you mean you didn't understand them? You weren't hearing them for the first time. You've heard these rights before. Uh, not just 20 years ago, but on other occasions as well. So here, Eaton, just like Giampa, had shot himself, but he'd has his rights read to him, explained to him many times before in many different arrests. And so the court again finds that here the waiver is knowing, intelligent, and voluntary. Um, and so another case that's worth talking about in this context too is U.S. versus Robinson, which is a case from 2005. Now, this is a case from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. It's not from the Virginia court, so it's not controlling, but it's very influential. And in fact, the court talks about it in, uh, in the Giampa case from Fairfax. This was involving a juvenile, not an adult, um, and where the officers read the defendant his Miranda rights, and he says he understands them. He refuses to sign the right, wait, uh, rights waiver form, but he says he'll answer questions. And here, the officers, and it's interesting, offer to let the defendant, Robinson, speak to his grandmother. Now, with juveniles, you're not required legally to get a Miranda waiver. You're not required legally to ask the juvenile if he wants to have contact with his parent or guardian, but it's a factor. Uh, and so, now there's a Virginia statute that says if you've arrested a juvenile, you must have, allow the juvenile to have contact with uh, a parent or guardian. But here, Robinson wasn't arrested. 
Giampa wasn't arrested either. Giampa's in the hospital, so he's not arrested. So that statute doesn't apply. So you're not legally required in Virginia to give either Mr. Robinson or Mr. Giampa, the guy in Fairfax, a uh, contact with his parents. But here, it's a factor. Uh, and, and Robinson decides he doesn't want to talk to his grandma. Then the court and the officers say, okay, great. Um, but the court here says, you know, he, he's got a low IQ and he's a juvenile, but in the conversation, he appears to be streetwise. He definitely understands his rights. And previously, he'd had his rights read to him twice before he'd been advised. Um, so he knew his rights very well. Just because he has a low IQ, that doesn't make him per se incapable of intelligently waiving his rights. Um, and they cite a case from the 11th Circuit where the defendant had an IQ of 62 and the intellectual capacity of an 11-year-old where the court still found that the waiver was lawful. Um, so again, it, it matters that you document the totality of the circumstances. That's what we need to look at. We need to look at the defendant's age, their mental condition, their understanding, whether they're intoxicated, whether you explain the rights, what are their statements, have they had their rights explained to them before, and so on. And if you're dealing with somebody who's intoxicated, who's mentally impaired, who might suffer some kind of deficit, it becomes extremely important to document all of those totality of circumstances. And I hope that today's episode has kind of focused you on some different factors that in the past, going back to the 1960s, the court has looked at in considering whether or not somebody's waiver is knowing, intelligent, and voluntary. Um, I will end with this interesting observation, though. Um, the trial court in this case suppressed the evidence finding that the Miranda waiver was not knowing, intelligent, and voluntary. The trial court did not find, however, that the statement itself was coerced. And I think that's a distinction that's worth remembering going forward. Um, the It makes it inadmissible. If you violate Miranda, a statement is inadmissible in the Commonwealth's case in chief. But this statement could still be used to impeach Mr. Giampa later on, later on down the road. Um, a, the only way to fully exclude a statement completely from the record and can't even be used to be brought up in response is to find that the officers essentially coerced the defendant into making the statement. But that shows has to show some affirmative police coercion, uh, which there are definitely cases of out there, right? I mean, there's places, cases from the courts where officers have whipped people or threatened them. Or uh, we've talked before here about um, economic coercion, uh, the Garrity case, and so on. But that's not what this case is. This case is about Miranda and whether or not the Miranda waiver is knowing, intelligent, and voluntary. Uh, it's not in this case in the eyes of the court, and so it won't be admissible in the Commonwealth's evidence, Commonwealth's case in chief in this case. So interesting case. I hope it had some interesting lessons for you. I hope you found today's episode to be useful. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, which is just a website you can use with a uh, you know mobile device or a computer or whatever. We're on... Uh, excuse me, SoundCloud. SoundCloud is a website. Stitcher is an app that's on uh, Android and Apple devices. From today, though, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured. See you next time.